Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX, and I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. At a baseball game, you always hope for the perfect conditions, warm weather, clear skies, and energetic crowd. Anything less than ideal can spell disaster, especially if you're the guy selling beer. Seems to be the worst night of the year, most likely. The worst night of the year? So far. It's cold. It's a Wednesday. Uh, there's no giveaway. Like last night was cold, but there was a Mookie Betts bobblehead giveaway. That was Fenway Park vendor Jose McGrath talking to Nick Fountain, co-host of NPR's Planet Money. In 2016, Nick went to this game to report on the skills and the strategy it takes to sell food at the ballpark. Nick, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks, Chris. So, of course, I've been to more than a few baseball games in my time. 
But you know something about baseball I don't, which is what goes on with the people who sell the food in the stands. For Planet Money, you went to Fenway Park to talk to the vendors. But before that, uh, you were a vendor yourself at Fenway Park. So tell me what that was like. Yeah, yeah. When I was in high school, the career counselor said, hey, would you like to get a job at Fenway Park? And I said, this is the best day of my life because a bunch of neighborhood kids where I grew up in Boston had had the job. And I knew that it was an awesome job. Pretty lucrative for a teenager and also pretty sweet. You get to hang out in a ball stadium. And it's so much fun interacting with all these people and getting to be this sort of caricature version of yourself where you're running and yelling and faking your accent a little bit. (laughs) I've been hit by a ball. I've seen other people being hit by a ball. I once sold Stephen King an ice cream bar. There's a lot of exciting things that happen. The, the stuff that's being sold by people like you walking through the bleachers, et cetera, versus the, the concession stands, how does that work? There's sort of more upscale products being sold in booths around the stadium, and then there's the stuff that's being sold in the stadium. Do they relate to each other in some way? Yeah, definitely in the boxes, there's really fancy food, Right. And then there's the stuff at the different concession stands. And then there's the stuff being sold in the stands. If you're selling stuff in the stands, it has to be very portable. And that means that sodas and ice creams and waters and peanuts are pretty good. But once you get to, like, hot dogs, I would say hot dogs is pretty much the limit of that. I know at Fenway Park they were doing uh, clam chowder for a while there. But that's really risky, you know? No, it's risky because... Because you're holding the... Case of this stuff over your head. You're running up and down the stairs with 30, 40 pounds worth of hot dogs. There's a sterno in there. There's some hot water to keep steaming the hot dogs. It's really dangerous, right. and it's quite a workout. My first year working there, I had to switch from uh, glasses to contact lenses because I was sweating so much. So tell me a little bit about you. You went to Fenway Park. Uh, you talked to the vendors, the ballpark vendors. What did you find out? Yeah, so for Planet Money... Meet another reporter, Robert Smith. We went to Fenway on a cold April night just to sort of explore this system of the allocation of different vendors. And we followed two vendors around. So at the beginning of the night, a manager comes by and they write out all the things that they're going to sell in the different parts of the stadium. So we're going to have three guys selling Coke at a home plate and three guys selling Diet Coke and maybe only two guys selling it at the bleachers. And then... The vendors, based on seniority, get to decide what product they pick. And that is a very strategic decision. Bud Light out of right. Coors at home, bro. Thank you. Hurley. Blue Moon. Last last beer, right? Yeah, I'll take that. All right, beer's gone. Vendors are calculating all these different things. They're making spreadsheets at home, trying to figure out which products work the best during the day. They all know that on a hot day, everything's going to sell well, but especially your waters, your ice creams, your sodas. And on a cold night, you want to be selling something hot. You want to be selling your hot dogs. And they really, really have studied the different clientele really well. I like to tell the story. When I was working there, I used to sell a lot of Diet Coke out of home plate because that's sort of where the vein people sit. But in the bleachers, I would prefer to sell Coke because people don't really care about the calorie count in there. Although Boston has turned much fancier since I worked there. So the rich people with the good seats want Diet Coke. Exactly. (laughs) And the rest of us slobs are just going to get Coke. So some of these people are 
clocking in at, at well over $1,000 a night. Oh, yeah. I mean, the variance between good sellers and bad sellers is amazing. You mentioned one guy in particular, Jose. Jose McGrath. He is a legend at Fenway Park. What's your ranking commission last year? Uh, it's first. The year before? First. The year before? It was first. It's been first for a bit. <laughs> He's just the best vendor at Fenway Park. I'm going to say one of the best that's ever been. So this guy, when the other vendors have, have quit, he's still with the remaining crowd after the game still selling stuff? Or yeah, you're supposed to, at a 7 o'clock game, you're supposed to stop selling at 9 o'clock or in the middle of the seventh inning, whichever comes earlier. And he is out there until middle of the eighth, just trying to get those last sales. At any point today, did you watch any of the game? Did you look out on the stadium? or? Um, there was one play that something happened. I looked up, but it was there was a home run for whoever we're playing today. Which <laughs> you don't know who we I were playing know. today. Uh, no, I don't know who we're playing today. You spent we're, three hours in a ballpark. I know. I know, and I'm a huge baseball fan. Yeah, I'm not sure who's in today. It's the Tampa Bay race. Is it Tampa Bay? Oh, it felt like Tampa Bay. I tell you what, that feels about right. <laughs> I've never seen someone vend like this guy does. He has been at it for as long as I've been going to games at Fenway Park. He's still at it. He goes down to spring training in, in Florida and does some vending there. It is just delightful to watch this guy run around the stadium, out-hustle everybody else, work longer than everybody else, and just do it with a smile on his face. So uh, you also followed uh, a guy who just started called Mitch yeah, we followed a rookie. Yeah. yeah, Mitch Lyons. And he was just, you know, he had just been working there for a week or two, and uh, he was pretty green. You basically just have to yell water. You get your water here, ice cold water. I'm going to give you a tip that I learned working here. Sure thing. It's a cold night. Don't say ice cold. Sure thing. I can do that. Warm water. <laughs> get your lukewarm water here. <laughs> I think Mitch enjoyed the game more, and Jose made a lot more sales. I, I would think the pressure of getting the sales every night would be – you'd be exhausted after seven and a half innings, right? I mean because you, you're on every second. You have to make change. You have to get the food to the people. You have to look for the row that your competitor hasn't gotten to. It's it's a full-on 110% immersion, right? Yeah, I mean you're constantly looking for the next sale. You're constantly running to evade those other vendors. You're yelling. You're saying, hey, Koki, a soda. Yeah, you mentioned faking the Boston accent. So would you go out of your way to do the yeah, the spa for the car thing and, and when you're in the stance? I'm going to say absolutely. And I would say that like 20% of the people selling food at Fenway Park lay it on thick with the accent. I'd say 50% of them lay it on thick. Now, obviously, we all grew up in Boston. We have our accents. But... You know, a certain part of this job is showmanship. Nick, thank you so much. Now I know it's a job I'm not cut out for, but I'm glad you loved it. Thanks. Thank you, Chris. That was Nick Fountain, along with Robert Smith, who reported this story for the Planet Money episode, Peanuts and Cracker Jack. My co-host Sarah Moult and I are ready to answer your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, and she stars in Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. 
Hey, Chris, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I am ready. <laughs> That's good. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, this is William from Millersville, Georgia. Hi, William. How can we help you today? Well, it was about a year ago I heard somebody ask you, when it comes to cooking, what was the difference between the crushed fresh garlic and garlic powder? And the answer was basically, okay, using either one. You know, I wasn't surprised at that. I had hoped that the person would ask you about that stuff in the jar. In the produce department, you got quart jars of, says, crushed garlic. Or minced garlic. Yeah. yeah. And you want to know what about it? Is it worth it? Well, what are you supposed to do with it? It tastes awful. Well, <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't do anything with it. Don't buy it. I agree. Don't buy it. It does taste awful. It has stuff added to it. It's First of all, it's minced up garlic, and, you know, it's got citric acid probably in there and a fair amount of salt yes. because if you put garlic into an anaerobic environment, meaning straight oil, it can create botulism. So I wouldn't buy it. If you're going to do minced garlic, I would mince your own, you know, before you're going to use it. The more you break up the cells of garlic, the stronger it gets. And right. so, you know, if you poach it whole, you know, it's quite sweet. If you crush it, it's a little stronger. And if you coarsely chop it, it's even stronger. And if you mince it, it's really much stronger because you keep rupturing the cells. Right. But where is it intended to be used? That stuff in the jar? Yeah. However you would use minced garlic uh, is the idea. Oh. Yeah, but as you pointed out... I don't think it out, works for that. Well, I don't think it works at all. I mean, you, you actually already knew the answer to this question. Don't bother. Well, about every five years I get tricked into it. I say, it's got to be good as garlic. <laughs> I try it again. No, it changes also as it sits. Ah. Its taste changes. It doesn't taste fresh. Well, any rate, now let's hear Chris... Pontificate? No. Well, yeah, I think it'd be okay. great as a topical application for a sunburn, for example. Or I mean, it's like, yeah. You, 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 I mean, your question is, why would anybody sell a product that's that bad? The answer is, the worst thing in the kitchen. One of the worst things is when the recipe says six garlic cloves minced, and nobody knows how to do it. It sticks to the knife. You know, it's dangerous. Nobody likes it. So that's why it's a convenience product. The short answer to the alternative is smash cloves of garlic, make sure the paper's, you know, gone from the outside. And as the Italians right. do, flavor the oil, if you're cooking with oil, flavor it with the garlic cloves. You start get, them in cold oil. Start them in cold oil. It pulls out more uh, flavor. And you get nice flavor. It's not overpowering. It's no work at all. And then dump the cloves before you serve the meal. Or, or cut off the top quarter, get rid of the outside paper, throw it in a super stew, cook it for a couple hours. Pull it out, squeeze it with tongs, and you have that really buttery, yummy, yummy garlic, which is nice and mild yeah. and is great. So, and you can make big amounts of it and then freeze it in ice cube trays. Oh, well, what is that squeeze it? I bought a squeezer for the fresh garlic, where it comes out looks like spaghetti strands coming out. You're talking about a garlic press. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Don't do that. Let's don't do that. Oh. Sarah and I will disagree, but most of the time, I would say don't do that because it gets a very strong flavor, which. I think people disagree with me. It's too strong. I think it's too strong. Yeah. Yeah, don't look at the prepared garlic section of but, the supermarket. But do, you know, it seems like you were interested in the roasting garlic business. So as Chris said, you take a whole head of garlic, cut off the top quarter of it, drizzle it with olive oil and salt, and wrap it in foil and put it in a 400-degree oven till it's very, very, very soft. I think it's about an hour. 
and then, you know, do several, do four heads at once and then squeeze them all out and, um, you know, freeze them. You have to freeze them because garlic has no, you know, acid, and so it can go bad quickly. You can do that, but you can also throw them into a super stew and cook the super yes. stew. And when the super stew's done, then you take it out and just squeeze it back in. Right, that's, that's too. the other way of doing it. Anyway, and actually, Save garlic can be a bit of a thickener. You know, we used to make this sauce when I worked at this restaurant, and we'd throw whole garlic cloves into the sauce, and then we'd puree it, sort of like make a garlic milkshake, and it had a wonderful texture. Oh. I like garlic. And garlic likes you. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thanks for calling. Thank Take care. Bye. Bye, sir. This is Milk Street Radio. If you need a little help in the kitchen, just give us a ring. Anytime, 855 855- Four two six nine eight four three. One more time, eight five five four two six nine eight four three. Or simply email us at questions at milkstreetradio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hey, Mike. Hey, how are you? How can we help you? I got a question for you guys. My wife and I have this tradition with two other couples where once a month we get together and do this thing called supper club. So we try to promote creativity, and just having fun mostly. Honestly, it's the three husbands pretending to be chefs and our wives rolling their eyes at us. So, in the spirit of creativity, Uh-oh. I was trying to come up with... <laughs> Here we go. In the spirit of creativity, I was trying to come up with a new dish, and I wanted it to be inspired. I wanted it to be local. So, staring at my bird feeder... Oh, no. It came to me the house sparrow. <laughs> Give me a second. Give okay. me a second. Go ahead. So this is a bird, non-native, yeah. and it's also highly invasive. It nearly wiped out the eastern bluebird, for instance. Very aggressive, nuisance bird, and certainly not protected under the Migratory Bird Act. So I'm thinking if I could ethically acquire some sparrows, why not use these for a supper club entree or, I guess, appetizer, depending on how many I had? Do you guys have any good sparrow recipes? Well, this is the most interesting call I've had in a long time. The first question is, are you motivated by revenge or culinary delight? Option C, all of the above. Okay, so the second thing is, yes. you know, I do hunt a fair amount. The problem with small birds is you can't shoot them. Uh, at least in Correct. quantity. So you're going to have to net them. Or like in Lebanon, for example, they put something on the trees that makes the birds stick to the trees so they get caught. Mm. How do you get enough sparrows you know, for dinner for six? I don't think you're going to go online to sparrow.com. <laughs> maybe. Maybe someone does ship them. I don't know. I'll try it. They have quail, they have rabbit, and they have sparrow. The other problem is if someone else isn't doing the work, field dressing them, as it were, is going to be a lot of work. Have you, have you ever done that before? I do a fair amount of hunting myself, primarily deer and duck. I'm not overly intimidated by that process. Here's what I would do. You want something different. I would go out and use quail and say it's sparrow. Ah. Absolutely. <laughs> Telling him no, no, to lie? Absolutely. And the other thing is, you really, I mean, sparrows, I wouldn't touch a bird who's in your neighborhood mm-hmm. for a million dollars because it could have pesticides, it could be eating out of trash, you just never know. So I would, oh, I got you. I, I would get a bird, quail or whatever, I would get a bird from a supplier who's growing them. They do all the prep work for you. Uh, in Lebanon, they actually grill them. 
quails uh, are yummy. They're delicious, and they use pomegranate molasses to baste them when they come off the grill, which is absolutely delicious. So I would do something like okay. that. You can also, you can buy them, or you used to be able to buy them online, partially boned, which makes your life easier. You want to do something spectacularly different, right? Yeah. Do something no one else has done. And honestly, I like the intersection of this being uh, unique and new and also a solution to a problem. Native songbird population reduction ongoing directly because of this other bird, the house sparrow. I salute you for your intrepid culinary taste, but please don't put this on social media. <laughs> You're going to have to move. Yeah, if you do, I don't this. think that'd be very popular. Here's a, here's one la- another thought: is why don't you do a whole foraged meal? There you lo- go. Local That's ingredients. A good idea. Mm, mushroom. Yes, yeah. I mean again, okay. do your homework so you don't kill anybody. That would be frowned upon. That's an excellent idea. But um, that That's would a very good idea. That yeah. would be very different. That's actually a good idea. Yeah. Okay. Love it, guys. We'll uh, we'll go for quail. All right. Thanks for the uh, year's most interesting call. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Anytime. Thanks, Chris. Bye. Thanks, okay. Sarah. Bye-bye. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. Coming up, a crash course in Filipino flavors and techniques with Chef Angela DiMiyuga. That's right after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine, like, something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but... 
pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it, like you did your week, you deserve this pizza, you deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer, it's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Next up, it's chef and artist Angela Dimiuga. She's the co-author of Philippinix. Heritage Recipes from the Diaspora. Angela, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks for having me. Really excited to talk with you today. You grew up in San Jose, and you said uh, Filipino migrant farm workers started settling there in the 1920s. So it's it has a large Filipino-American population. Yeah, that's right. So what was it like growing up? Would you have a lot of family around? The food was a combination of Filipino food and American food? What what was that like? I have a bunch of cousins. I have 40 cousins. My mom <laughs> has eight siblings. And so that means our family gatherings are quite large. Also, being around a bunch of Filipinos in my elementary school and high school meant that not only were we eating Filipino food at home, but we're eating Filipino food from different regions at friends' homes. And then in general, the food options in San Jose were amazing. I grew mm. up around a lot of Mexican food. Um, San Jose is 30% Asian and 30% Mexican. And so I got to eat lots of Vietnamese food and then, of course, American food because in the early 90s, fast food was taking a real boom. What little I do know about the Philippines and Philippine cooking is that it's complicated, right? I mean, there's like 200 different indigenous languages, the north, south, east, west, different islands. It's very different, right, in different places. Is there a way to say that there is a, a cuisine or is it just like many places? It just depends where you come from or what part of the Philippines you're talking about. I think that's a really good question. You know, in a, if I'm looking at the historical timeline of the Philippines, 
We were 7,000 disparate islands, all with our own different cultures. I think about Okinawa in relationship to Japan or Taiwan in relationship to China. There are regional dishes that are specialties from all over. In the south of the Philippines, there is a large Muslim population, and so they have their own types of curries using burnt coconut. But if you look at just the historical timeline uh, when the Philippines became the Philippines, during King Philip's reign, there were ingredients that came into the Philippines from around the world. And so for me, when I think about the Filipino cuisine as a whole, there's a layer of richness that's different than other Asian countries because of our use of dairy, butter, and cheese. We also have a lot of sour flavors from our indigenous cuisine flavor profiles that are citrusy and sour from fermentation using coconut vinegar, uh, just to simply preserve our food in this hot tropical weather. Coconut vinegar is at the heart of so many of these recipes. Um, you also talk about how to make it at home. But what is it about that vinegar that is really critical or foundational for your cooking? Yeah, one one part of the book is the flavor matrix, which actually... Right designed, inspired by the culture matrix that's at the back of New York Magazine. Mm -hmm. And for me, I think it was an opportunity to share what the flavor profiles of our cuisine are. If you see a densely populated quadrant of this flavor matrix, it makes you understand what our food might taste like, crunchy, fatty, acidic, etc. So you asked about coconut vinegar, and coconut vinegar, I feel, is very recognizable for Filipino cuisine. And that's simply from the plethora of coconuts available in indigenous periods. Um, we utilized all the parts of a coconut, and that's something I learned that was really beautiful. Like the coconut shells were used as fuel. Uh, you, you could uh, burn them as charcoal on a grill. You could also, there was an indigenous dance that we learned in folk dancing where they used the coconut shells for percussion instruments on your body. So you would just mm. use two coconut shells and hit various parts of your body and do this rhythmic type of dancing. The coconut milk would be used to flavor and thicken and make dishes more rich, like the coconut milk adobo, which is a really popular dish. And then we even take coconut milk and fry it uh, you basically cook it for a long time, simmering to the point that the curds separate from the oil, and you get these beautiful, nutty, crispy bits that we top on sticky rice. You then get coconut oil from that process, and you can utilize that in cooking. Um, and coconut vinegar was uh, from fermenting the coconut water. You do also say that adobo, you say, quote, it's the least understood recipe by Westerners. Um, what is it that we don't understand about it. I mean, it's a fairly straightforward concept, but w w what is it we think it is that it's not? <laughs> yeah, I think the name is uh, misleading. That was a name that was given by Spanish colonizers in the Philippines. I love that I learned in the bookmaking process that this is an indigenous dish, but this is a name that became a unified name for all the versions of this dish that exists in the 7,000 islands. Um, and it reminded Spanish colonizers of their version of adobo, which has a bunch of spices, and it's a richly seasoned stewed meat. It doesn't always have vinegar in it, but 
the proportions, again, are what makes this dish special using soy sauce and vinegar. And that's what I mean by least understood because of that historical fact. But this introduction of these simple flavors that combine in a really unique way, I think when you think about all of those ingredients, soy sauce, garlic, bay leaf, black pepper, you're not maybe ready for what that flavor profile is. And when you do taste it, it's undeniably good. And I love that dish as a gateway dish um, because it works with chicken, pork. I can make that sauce and pour it over fish, but it works really well with tofu or cauliflower. I've made a lot of fried chicken in my time. Um, but your recipe is the most interesting fried chicken recipe I've ever seen. You, you steam it first. You make a marinade using raw rice. You baste it with a marinade, throw it in the fridge for 24 hours till it dries out, and then you fry it. Is this something you came up with? Because it, it really sounds interesting. <laughs> that's, that's the nerdy chef side of technique that I added to this dish where I had been so inspired by utilizing koji and made for many years a koji fried chicken. I wanted to merge that technique to a chain that exists that's Filipino, a fried chicken chain called Max's Fried Chicken. I never even went there as a kid, but my dad loved that recipe. So I was really just playing around, and I had that fried chicken dish in the book. But then it was also really fun to have a whole roasted chicken that is made by just dumping a sinigang packet, which is a tamarind soup base that's really popular. MSG and all, we love MSG. You know, with Americans, we have this fear of MSG. Just from, this was from a, a, like a racist history of um, the separation of Asian cuisine and MSG that has been debunked at this point. Um, and, you know, MSG is just something that was um, found by a Japanese scientist right. um, that allowed you to taste umami on a really special level. But it, it's in everyday foods, um, mushrooms, tomatoes, seaweed. Um, so it's naturally derived. It was just selected and celebrated by Aji Nomoto. So that's a whole rabbit hole I think um, we should look into if we don't understand that. And something to celebrate as an invention at this point. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm pro-MSG. And Shiokoji <laughs> also, the liquid Shiokoji from Japan, that which is kind of the same thing, but I'm all for it. You, you also did something in the book. You have a fried pork chop stack. <laughs> now, could you just explain that to me? Because it just sounds like a lovely idea, but, but what is it? <laughs> so coming from a big family, my mom would make these giant batches of food, feeding six kids at a time, coming home at different times. My dad would come home from work really late from working in the restaurant industry. And so we had food always made in giant piles. And one of those was um, a fried pork cutlet. And, you know, just like adobo, there was uh, this preservation method of just brining pork chops straight up in a smashed garlic and vinegar marinade. Um, and so you can marinate that for a couple days, but my mom would marinate these thin pork chops. Mm. And I uh, made ton, like countless hundreds of pork chops when I was working at a new American restaurant called Vinegar Hill in Brooklyn. And we had 
what they were called double-cut pork chops that were massive. And I learned to butter baste these pork chops. We cooked them in a wood oven, and I love that butter basting technique. You just baste with butter? Is that the technique? Yeah, so you fry either a piece of steak or pork chop in olive oil at a really high temperature to get a nice crunchy sear, Mm -hmm. get the umami from that crust that's built up. And so I combined those techniques where I use that vinegar marinated pork chop of my mom's, thin cut. Um, And the idea is to merge that flavor of vinegar, butter, garlic, and make a huge stack of it because oftentimes when my mom would make fried meats for me, you don't eat one piece. You eat two or three with mounds of rice and just eat as much as you want. And that's, that's where the stack idea comes from. And now we turn, finally, to dessert. Um, Mango turmeric chiffon cake. That just really (laughs) caught my eye. So you need to talk about that. Yeah. um, My grandmother was an amazing pastry chef. Not only should she cook tons of Filipino food and, and her specialties, but she also had a huge range of desserts. And I think that's something that the American audience doesn't quite know about because I think it was such an individual experience of my own. But we have so many pastries and cakes in the Philippines um, and in Filipino cuisine. Reminds me so much of if you hit up a Chinatown and you go to the, the Chinese bakeries, there's so many options. But the cake that my grandmother made, we would just call it mango cake growing up. Um, And she would either use really ripe mangoes or even canned mangoes. Um, But I realized when I learned more about baking as an adult and working in kitchens that her recipe was essentially a chiffon cake. Um, And that was the cake that she'd make for every birthday. Um, So it had fluffy eggs where you whip up your egg whites separate from the rest of the batter. um, And you just fold it in so gently. And um, it's just simply whipped cream and mango on top. And I just really love that dish because it's not super sweet. And it really matters to have this sweet tart flavor from the mangoes. And then I also just loved um, utilizing a really high quality turmeric powder to separate some of the batter in a separate bowl and just add some turmeric to that. I really love that flavor and fragrance of turmeric. It also just looks really gorgeous with that mango. Um, And you just spoon in different layers of the white batter and the turmeric batter, and then you get this beautiful swirl that is actually Mm. quite effortless. Turmeric mango chiffon cake. That's a great – that's another one. That's the stack of pork chops on the menu and that for (laughs) dessert, and you're all set. Angela, it's uh, it's been fun. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for talking to me about all the technique of our cuisine. Really fun to talk with you about it. That was Angela Dimiuga, co-author of Filipinx, Heritage Recipes from the Diaspora. You can find her recipe for mango turmeric chiffon cake at MilkStreetRadio.com. You know, countries contain their own diasporas. National borders rarely define a consistent culinary heritage. In the Philippines, for example, there are 7,000 islands, 200 dialects, and culinary styles that vary substantially from north to south, from east to west. So the truth is that national dishes, they do exist, but they are simply the tip of the cultural iceberg. 
What lies beneath is the real story. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. We're heading into the kitchen with Lynn Clark to learn this week's recipe, Swedish cardamom buns. Lynn, how are you? I'm doing well. You know, our food editor, Matt Card, one of the things he's told me about for years is Swedish cardamom buns, and we made them not too long ago, and I was just, I was blown away. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a cinnamon roll or cinnamon but they're a little sweet and sort of one note. The cardamom with the dough, the enriched dough, is just a lovely combination. It is absolutely a home run. So we worked on a recipe, and uh, how does it go? Well, this is a bit of a project piece, which I think is always fun, especially because it's actually not that hard. It just takes some time. Obviously, it's a yeast dough, so it's going to rise a couple of times. You have a little bit of fun shaping to do because these are kind of twisted and wrapped around your fingers into this little turban-like bun filled with a mixture of cardamom, brown sugar, and softened butter. The dough is enriched with all of that milk and butter and an egg. And then this cardamom flavor is really the star. Because of that, we do not recommend using pre-ground cardamom in the recipe. Instead, you want to try to find cardamom seeds and grind them yourself, which you can do in a mortar and pestle, or you can do with a spice grinder. You just want to leave a little bit of texture because we like having a little bit of that texture in the dough. You know, I have a feeling, if I were a betting person, that next year will be the year of cardamom. Yep. It's sneaking up on us every time I, I turn around. But this dish is just... These buns are just absolutely tremendous. One last question. So you fill it, the dough, et cetera. How do you shape the buns? This is like a spiral shape. How do you do it? It's actually a really pretty little bun, much prettier than a cinnamon roll. So you roll out the dough, you fill it, and then cut the dough into strips. And you take those strips and kind of while you're twisting the strip of dough, you swirl it around your fingers and make it into this little, it looks almost like a little turban. It's really nice and high and plump. And so that creates a lot of different textures. So you've got that filling kind of poking out in a lot of different areas. I can't sell this hard enough. I love these. I make them all the time. They're so different than a cinnamon roll, but will likely replace your love for cinnamon rolls. I've never heard you this excited before. I really like any sort of breakfast baked good, but these have quickly become my favorite. Lynn, thank you. Swedish cardamom buns, uh, some work. It's a yeast to dough, but it's not hard. And these are absolutely spectacular. Thank you. You're welcome. You can get the recipe for Swedish cardamom buns at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, the language of dining outdoors with Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett. We'll be right back. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. 
This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time to take a few more calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Catherine Devine from Houston, Texas. Hi, Catherine. How can we help you today? So I have a question about roasting sweet potatoes. I roast a half-sheet pan of sweet potato slices almost every day for my daughter's breakfast. And I'm having an issue with some of the slices being nice and crispy. Other pieces are kind of raw and soggy. And then some pieces, they just burn up and they're little charcoal bits. And so I'm trying to figure out how to make a full pan of evenly crisped sweet potato slices. So I have to ask the obvious questions for starts. Sweet potatoes vary in terms of how old they are, how much sugar they have, if they've ever been refrigerated. The older they are, the more their starch has turned to sugar. So you could have had a discrepancy even within, you know, the same batch of potatoes you got because maybe they all got mixed up in the bin at the supermarket. How did you slice them? Were they all of the same thickness? Yes. I typically do one sweet potato and I peel it and then I slice it by hand. Sometimes I use my mandolin, but my goal is to make them all even. I typically use the round slice. Sometimes I cut it in half again so they're half rounds. How thick are the slices? between one-eighth and one-quarter of an inch. 
if it's a long, skinny sweet potato, I can do those rounds pretty quickly. If it's a big, fat one, that's when I'll typically cut it in half, cut it again, so I have a flat surface to work with. Yeah, I think that makes more sense. But aside from that, I was going to say that, first of all, they don't have the same starch as white potatoes, and they have a lot more sugar, so they do brown unevenly. It's sort of hard to get around. One thing you might consider, but it's sort of a pain in the butt, is to boil them in some acidulated water. The acid helps to set up the pectin. Just do it very briefly. Pat them dry. And then something else Mm -hmm. you could do is make sort of a cornstarch slurry with water and cornstarch, very thin slurry, and then toss them in that and then roast them at a high heat. But that sounds like a lot more work than anybody would ever want to do. So (laughs) I don't know. I mean, Chris, what do you think? Here's my two thoughts. If they're not exactly the same thickness being an eighth an inch to a quarter inch, I think that's where you might get your variation because it's all the same sweet potato. Secondly, what temperature is your oven when you do this? 400. The outside of the sweet potato is going to get caramelized with a heat fast before the inside's cooked. So I would try a 350 oven and use a mandolin to get perfectly even slices. And I'd put it on a little parchment sheet, you know, on the half baking tray and see if even slices in lower temperature might give you more consistent results? Because you said some get crispy and some don't. You know what? I wonder if this is a job for an air fryer. I haven't done all that much work with an air fryer, but I know that We have. What do you think? I've actually tried that, too. We tried French fries. Makes terrible French fries. (laughs) Isn't that the point of an air fryer? They were kind of soggy. They're soggy. They didn't get as crispy as I would have thought. Yeah. Everyone buys an air fryer for a variety of reasons, but French fries evidently is not the reason. It's not the reason. I would try that because I think inconsistency is the problem here. Or you could try what I suggested, but it is a pain in the butt. She just wants to throw them in the oven. Okay. Done with it. It's just breakfast. But I am interested in the boiling. Did you say it's a special kind of water you boil them in? Acidulated. Some white vinegar. Put a little bit of vinegar in there. I could have made, you know, three batches of waffles, two batches of pancakes, and some corn muffins in the time to get finished with the prep for this. Well, well, come on over to my house and do breakfast. Yeah. I do breakfast well. (laughs) Right, right. Anyway, Catherine, uh, give that a shot. Yeah. Thank you. You good mom. Yeah. Healthy. I want maple syrup on mine. Okay. Take care. Well, thank you so much for the tips. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Sarah and I are ready to solve your most perplexing kitchen mysteries. At least we think we can. Give us a ring, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or drop us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Paula Gorgileski calling from Magnolia, Texas. How can we help you? Well, I have just been fascinated since I heard of Milk Street and, you know, learning about different ways to cook and bringing new flavor profiles to my family. But there are allergy and food sensitivity issues that I encounter. And I was intrigued with one of your recent recipes, cod with cherry tomatoes, olives, Mm -hmm. and capers. But the cornmeal, corn is one of the food allergies that we deal with. So what's one of the kind of substitution can be made for the cornmeal? You can get, I think, gluten-free panko breadcrumbs. Okay. And I use those anytime I'm sauteing or frying, shallow frying fish or chicken cutlets or whatever. Panko really does, I don't know about the gluten-free version of it, but it is very crispy. And I think what you're looking for here is that texture on the outside. The other thing you could do is just skip the cornmeal entirely and just 
cook the fish and serve it, you know, with uh, olives and capers and tomatoes. But if you want that crispy outside texture, that would be my go-to. I mean, are you looking for a crispy coating or you just want a coating? And see, that's a great question because I'm never really sure what the best way to substitute something. You know, I assume that because the recipe calls for cornmeal, that it should have something crispy on it. So if I want a crispy texture, then obviously I need to use something. The pingo sounds good. And I know in the past I've ground up nuts to make you know a flour of sorts. But it's always kind of a hit or miss thing. Yeah, I, I would do the gluten-free panko. But the other thing is when I do this, I guess you could use a gluten-free flour. I always take the chicken or the cutlet or the fish in flour first, shake it off into egg, and then into the panko. Standard breading procedure. Yeah, and that way the egg's really going to hold on to the— It will stick. If you don't use the flour, it's not going to stick very well. May I ask you one more quick question sure. um, along this line? You were mentioning— Dump it and dump it in the flour, shake it, put it in the egg, then Mm -hmm. put it through the powder again. The coating, yeah. We also have egg allergies. So Uh what would be a good substitute for the egg in that? Milk. Milk? Mm -hmm. Okay, then there's dairy. That was the other. Okay, water. (laughs) Even water. Water's fine. How about egg white? Can you use egg white? Is it just the yolk or the egg white? You know, that's. uh, Egg white makes a terrific coating. Yeah. I use that Mm -hmm. all the time. It's really crispy. Or you could use stock. It's sort of a wetness that glues the coating to the flour that's already on the fish. So it's not the viscosity of the liquid. It's just the fact of having a liquid. Eggs will make a thicker coating. Yeah, eggs will make a thicker coating, but I think it would work with any liquid. I see. Oh, boy, poor you. What a challenge you have. (laughs) Yeah, we have a whole long laundry list of allergy issues that have to be dealt with. So it's always a constant battle to try and figure out, you know, what's going to work and what isn't. Well, maybe you'll end up with tequila cod with cherry tomatoes, olives, and capers as, as your liquid. <laughs> well, maybe we just invented something. Yeah, right? no, that sounds good to me. Yeah, it doesn't, yeah. maybe that's a good idea. Yeah. Anyway, Paula, thanks for calling. Yes. Good luck. Thank you so much. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> okay. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Right now, it's time for a language lesson with Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. Grand Martha, what's up this week? Hey, Chris. Good to talk to you. Hey, Chris. We're thinking about dining al fresco this evening. I don't know about you, but I always find that food tastes better outdoors. And when you're talking about al fresco, you're literally dining in the fresh air. It's an Italian phrase that means in the fresh air. But you don't use that phrase in Italy because al fresco in Italian is slang for in prison. (laughs) So what would you say in Italian instead? <laughs> well, if you're uh, going to a restaurant in Italy, what you want to ask your waiter for is to dine fuori, which means outdoors, hmm. or al aperto. So if al fresco is slang for in prison, which just doesn't sound too appealing, why is that term used here to mean eating outside? Okay. Well, the difference is that uh, in ancient Italy, jail cells were often holes in the ground, and they had the top open to the sky. So it's sort of... Fresco meaning fresh, <laughs> ironically, I suppose. So this is one of those borrowings where we just wanted to borrow a little bit of the glamour of a, of a foreign language. 
just like we sometimes do with French. Right. And in fact, we borrowed from the French the word picnic, uh, which um, has a kind of a squishy etymology. We're not totally sure of it, but it apparently goes all the way back to the 17th century. And uh, the idea of picking a thing of little value, you know, everybody brings a little bit to a gathering Mm. outside. Well, at least we got revenge on the French because they say the weekend so, <laughs> That's okay. true, they weekend. do. You yeah, have they, a picnic they. on the weekend. And so I'm also thinking about all these other kinds, particularly in the South, there's all these other kinds of outdoor gatherings like fish fries and basket dinners, uh, Kentucky burgoos. There's so many of these. Mm-hmm. Dinner on the ground and fish camp in North Carolina. I remember going to fish camp. Right. And, and then, of course, and I know these aren't exclusively outdoor meals, but the difference between potluck and covered dish is kind of this dividing um, lingo in the United States. They're they're very reasonably demarcated, aren't they? They are, yeah. You usually hear the term potluck in the northern Midwest or the far west of the northern plains, and it's in the south and the eastern seaboard and the eastern Midwest where you hear the term covered dish for that kind of uh, supper or lunch. And Chris, if you're dining outside, I'm hoping that you won't ever experience formication. <laughs> what? Man, yeah. I, I'm not. I'm not going for that one. <laughs> I know There's ten an M football. in there. A letter M as in money, not an N as in nickel. Right? <laughs> so what? What does formication mean? Formication is a fancy term for the sensation of ants crawling on your skin. Well, can, can I ask a question? Because you guys yes, are sir. experts on words. Why did someone need to invent a term for the feeling of ants crawling over your skin? Well, actually, it's a medical term. You know, some people have those kinds of things, and it's one of those fancy Latin-based terms. But I'm kind of thinking back, leaving the kitchen again, Martha, and going outside to a log fire or a wood fire and the things that we cook over the fire and s'mores or the stuff that uh, Boy Scouts and Cub Scouts make that they wrap in foil. and, and, And these have a tradition, and there's some language attached to both of those. Sure. Yeah, you always want some more of a some more, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, usually. So is that actually the derivation of that term? Absolutely. Yeah. Sure is. Yeah, in the 20s and 30s, uh, s'more was used before it became the fireside treat to just mean some more of, of whatever it is they were talking about. And then by the 1920s, uh, 1928, in fact, we find it used as a campfire hmm. treat at a girls' gathering for the YWCA. Huh. I didn't know that. Yeah, pretty much exactly as we make them today with chocolate, graham crackers, and marshmallow. It's still a winner. I mean. Yeah, and part of it is the fun of the mess, too. Yeah. <laughs> part of the fun is, is taking a big bite out of your five-year-old s'mores before he has a chance to get to it. Right. That's, that's and also, the fresh air and, and the, the smoke air. following you. Uh-huh. So, so s'mores yeah. al fresco. So, Chris, did you ever make hobo stew or foil stew or campfire stew, tinfoil dinner? I've done tinfoil dinners, yes. But I haven't okay. made stew or hobo uh, stew. And we're not talking TV dinners that you buy and, you know, they're right. cooked in foil, but... These are where you take vegetables, meat, maybe butter or oil and seasoning and seal them together in a packet to roast in the coals of of a fading fire. And this is this comes from the hobo tradition, which is more than 100 years old. And it's basically a a mulligan stew. Originally, it was whatever you had at hand uh, seasoned well, because usually it wasn't of high quality and cooked all at once over a fire. 
But Chris, you might carry all of those things in a knapsack, which right. is actually another food word because apparently that goes back to an old German word that means to eat, knappen, which is literally to make a snapping noise. So you're hmm. carrying all those edibles in your knapsack. The good old medieval German always comes in handy, I find. Always. You guys are just a, a fount of <laughs> obscure but fascinating knowledge. <laughs> We've been called worse. It is a regular clam bake with us, Chris. <laughs> Grant and Martha, thank you so much. Uh, next time I see you, I hope we don't dine al fresco, at least in the true meaning of the word. Well, stay out of trouble, Chris. <laughs> no, that's right. Thank you so much. That was Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. That's it for this week's show. You can find all of our episodes on MilkStreetRadio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about Milk Street at 177MilkStreet.com. There you can become a member for just $1. You get full access to all of our recipes, to our live stream cooking classes, and get free standard shipping from the Milk Street store and more. We're on Instagram and Twitter at 177MilkStreet, on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Assistant producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. PRX.